Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Many of the failures we are seeing around the coronavirus response could have been prevented by strong leadership in the area of public health. My guest today, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, is no stranger to this leadership. As a physician and former health director for the city of Detroit, Abdul saw firsthand how important this work is in the day-to-day lives of Americans. He was a candidate for governor of Michigan in 2016 and is the author of the new book, Healing Politics. A Doctor's Journey into the Heart of Our Political Epidemic. I want to talk about the differential experience of health. Why is it that some people suffer and other people don't? The goal is to ease the guidelines and open things up to very large sections of our country as we near the end of our historic battle with the invisible enemy. You have two doctors on stage with you. Have either of them told you that's a realistic timeline? I think we're looking at a timeline we're discussing it the trump administration has decided not to reopen obamacare markets for people who don't yet have health insurance i am here today to announce my candidacy for governor of the state of michigan when i rebuilt detroit's health department we stood up to some of the biggest corporate polluters in the state and we made sure that our kids weren't exposed to lead in their schools i learned then that politicians doors don't open for people like you and me hey friends my name is dr abdul el sayed And I believe we need Medicare for all right now. We're conducting this interview in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. You are in Michigan, which has significant hotspots in Detroit. Can you tell us a little bit what it's like there right now and what's happening in hospitals? Yeah. So you're right. This is we've just emerged as the second most affected state by coronavirus. And for me, that's particularly challenging. I ran for governor of the state and I served to the city of Detroit as health director. I talk to my colleagues, both in the city and then on the front lines in the hospitals every day. And it's pretty clear the hospitals are getting just inundated with patients who are suffering the symptoms of coronavirus. And I spoke to a friend of mine who is a clinician and he painted a really bleak picture of what this is like because Patients are crashing quickly and the symptoms are hard. They're both really, really hard to endure because, you know, you feel like someone's taking your breath away. It's really hard to watch somebody struggle to just do a basic thing like breathe. And the idea that that's happening across the board, it's inundating our hospitals, to me, is devastating. And especially when we think back to why this is happening and what we could have done to prevent it. So it's a challenging moment, I think, for a community that has been deeply affected by almost every other really serious challenge we've had in society. And and it's hard to see. I have complex PTSD. I think that everyone is suffering from a pre-TSD right now where people are anticipating the apex. You know, I keep talking to my GP who keeps telling me you need to steal yourself for the headlines that are about to spread over our airways, you know, and it's scary. And I have so much respect for the doctors and healthcare workers that are, you know, on these front lines, basically giving their life to protect their patients. So, 
and we have to respect that. And it's amazing what they do every day. So your governor, Gretchen Whitmer, has been the, I guess you would say, victim of a number of attacks by Trump. The governor suggested on WWJ the feds were purposely withholding equipment that hospitals need to treat patients. This evening, she said this. And then encouraged to, you know, procure supplies outside of the federal government. We've been working really hard to do that. We're bidding against one another. It's really not a great system. And once you do have a contract, you can find out later that it will evaporate because uh, you'll be told that the federal government needs the material. Uh, Michigan, all she does is she has no idea what's going on. And all she does is say, oh, it's the federal government's fault. And we've taken such great care of Michigan. The president tweeted about the governor. He said she must work harder and be more proactive. Do you think that this is on the ground impact of the ability to respond? How do you feel about this? No. First, I have to say that you know I ran in a primary against Governor Whitmer, and I know how tough she is. And you know, I think she's doing an admirable job considering the circumstances, especially considering the fact that she's trying to coax any bit of resources that we need to deliver to those front lines that we just talked about from a federal government that's being run by an individual who cares more about his sense of himself and feeding his narcissism than he cares about delivering for people in our state. And so you have the scenario where there's just not enough resources to go around. And because the president and the federal government under him have sort of abdicated the responsibility to serve and to lead in this moment, barring a number of really great public officials who are trying their best, you've got people who are just competing against each other. And so it's a struggle to get those resources and it's showing on the front line. So yeah, like These spots that we see on national television playing out, for him, it's just a game. It's about being able to gin up some sort of conflict so that he can look like he's fighting, which is what he seems to do best. But for people on the ground, it's the difference between life and death. It's it's sad to see him playing politics with people's lives in my state. It's been reported that the federal government is withholding shipments of supplies and forcing vendors to basically cancel contracts with Michigan. I mean, what the fuck? You were a a public health policy professional in Detroit. I mean, what happens if Michigan does not get these supplies? Well, you know, Alyssa, you know, the work that we're doing right now, the reason that we're all at home is because we want to flatten the curve. The other part of that, though, is that we have to anticipate and prepare for the curve. And that means stocking up on the resources that we need to get to those front lines. And of course, as the number of cases continues to increase, we're watching people go without the necessary PPE to protect themselves in clinical settings. What I can tell you is um, it has quickly grown into a war zone. ICU nurse Diane Case shot this video inside her Yonkers, New York hospital because she says she's so concerned. This is the painter coveralls. The lack of personal protective gear is putting her and her fellow nurses at risk. No isolation gowns. And we are riddled with fear and anxiety because we don't have the proper equipment to take care of these patients. So what? We're expendable. That's how we feel. But also things like ventilators, which are just so critical to saving lives in people who are suffering from COVID. And so, yeah, like it's going to look like doctors making choices about who lives and who dies. And we hope that we never get there. But the absence of resources over petty politics and the impact that it's going to have on people's lives and livelihoods here, it is infuriating. And I hope that coming out of this, all of us are committed 
to the work that we need to do to take this man out of politics and to make sure that we replace him with the president who's not going to put politics over public health. I mean, I keep getting that there's a meme going around of if someone woke up from a coma that they had been in since the election in 2016, how would you update them on this administration and where we are today? It feels like the most surreal experience living through this time. I mean, it just, I lay down in bed with Dave every night and I'm like, what the fuck is happening right now? You know, I keep hearing reports of this apex. How much worse is this going to get? Not only just for Michigan, but globally and for the United States. Yeah, it's going to be worse for a while. I think we're going to hear worse and worse news for at least the next month. Dr. Fauci predicted the number of deaths to go between 100,000 and 200,000. And the thing, Alyssa, that I I just want to remind everyone is that as an epidemiologist and, and a former health director, this is preventable. It's like a fire. If you put out a fire when it's in your toaster, it doesn't spread. And you know you might have to get a new toaster, but that's it. But if you let the fire burn and it engulfs your house and then engulfs the neighborhood, you're going to be fighting an inferno. And right now, because we didn't put out the fire when it was in the toaster, because we had cut funding for public health, because we had an inept federal response early on in the pandemic and even now, we're fighting an inferno. And we didn't have to be here. Those 100,000 or 200,000 lives lost, those were preventable deaths. And we have to make a decision about whether or not we are willing to build out the politics that is going to prevent that from ever happening again. And I think that's all of our responsibility moving forward. It's terrible. And we got to do everything we can to keep that number as low as possible. But we shouldn't have been here in the first place. Your book, Healing Politics, is now available. And the book talks a lot about the types of political failures that we are seeing right now and how they really impact people in the world. Will you tell us all a little bit more about your book? Yeah, there's a bit of a tragic irony to be an epidemiologist who's writing a book about an epidemic that comes out in the middle of an epidemic. Not the best time to publish a book, but we had to make a decision about whether or not we're going to publish. And I just felt like this is a set of conversations that needs to be had. In the book, I diagnose this concept of an epidemic of insecurity. And I make the argument that this epidemic of insecurity is about systematic failures in all of the systems that we have trusted to provide us with the basic means of a dignified life, whether that is failure of our health system to provide health care for people, a failure of our housing system to keep people in their homes, a failure of our food system to provide adequate access to healthy foods for people, a failure of our education system to provide a high quality education in a safe place, a failure of our economic system to provide people with high quality, dignified jobs that provide a wage, provide benefits that provide them with a stable retirement, a failure of our political system to fully capture the voice of everybody rather than just the voice of corporations who have undue influence on our politics right now. And together, right, the failures are even greater than any of them individually. And I argue that this is what we call a miasma. Uh, the environmental context within which uh, people get sick. And this miasma of insecurity is something that we're all suffering right now. And the insecurity that causes, it convinces us that the challenges that we face, right, are challenges that are caused by other people also suffering insecurity and other people who are equally suffering. And so, you know, this is played upon by demagogues and plutocrats like Donald Trump to tell us, you know, that the reason that low-income white people suffer is because low-income brown people came and took their jobs or that low-income black people are getting some modicum of 
a very meager benefit. And the point that I'm making in the book is that to take on insecurity, we have to appreciate that it is, in fact, a disease. We have, the, have to have the empathy to understand what insecurity does to us and our politics and to appreciate that actually all of us are in this together. And, you know, it comes out in the middle of this pandemic where the failure of our public institutions has become so obvious and so dire, literally costing people their lives. And at the same time, you know, we are required to engage in this real collective action of social distancing, right? It takes all of us doing it. And if any of us cheat, it hurts all of us. And so I think this is a moment where we can ask, you know, what does it take for all of us to come together to build the kind of politics that allows us to really take on these systems, fix them, solve them, and empower ourselves and our kids and our grandkids through them. So how do we heal our politics? Yeah. I think, number one, we have to commit to empathy. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of finger pointing that we do amongst each other. Now, pointing at Donald Trump and saying he's a failure and, and has cost people their lives, that's true. But I think sometimes we take that and then we point to people who his demagoguery has affected, right? The fact that he's played on their insecurities to convince them of this idea that somehow he's the one who's going to save them, despite the fact that all of his policies really have hurt the vast majority of people who support him. I think sometimes if we were, instead of pointing fingers, we were to have empathy and ask, what is your life like? And why are you susceptible to the demagoguery of somebody like this? And how do we reach you where you are? My sense is that we would be so much more the effective when it came to actually building the politics that we need. And then the other part of that is that we've got to commit even just on the left to being bold in our policy solutions. There is this knee-jerk approach that we take to bold policies to actually fix our problems, which you know goes something like this. How much is that going to cost? Healthcare in the United States is going through a political reckoning with lots of ideas on how to reform or completely change the way people get and pay for health insurance. Many on the right want to move toward a more privately run system with less insurance requirements on individuals, health insurance companies, and employers, and less government subsidies and funding. We want all the providers of healthcare services, insurers, doctors, hospitals, everyone competing against each other for our business as patients, as consumers. But Republicans are splintered on just how to roll back the government's role in individuals' health care, something that came to a head when four different plans failed to pass the Senate in July. The left, on the other hand, wants to boost those public government programs and coverage requirements to give more Americans health insurance. Democrats believe that health care is a right for all. When you explain that, in fact, a lot of these policies cost us far less in the long term than inaction or less bold policy, then it's a push and say, well, that, that seems like socialism. And I'm not a socialist, but I do believe that collective action when it comes to very clear and obvious public goods like health care in the form of Medicare for all or action on climate change in the form of a Green New Deal, that these things are not just an option. They are required. And if we don't step up to take on collective action, we will fail collectively. And we can't let our insecurity, our fear of the unknown or our fear of failure or our fear that we will lose more because of the system that has taken so much from us get in the way of being bold. Are there examples of cities or states that are getting things right right now? I mean, I live in California. I think Gavin Newsom's doing a great job under very trying circumstances, but it sure would be nice to have federal support. The first case that we at least know of 
was found in Washington State. Right. And Washington State has a long history of progressive action. Seattle was one of the first cities to pass a $15 minimum wage. Right. And their leadership in that city, in that state, in Kings County, has really done a great job of taking this on and helping to flatten the curve as fast as possible while coordinating support for folks who are going to be the most affected financially by this. That's kind of leadership we need across the country. And so it's really hard when in the absence of strong federal leadership in the context of, you know, a strong federal government versus state and local governments in our country, we generally rely on the federal government to do a lot of these things. So it's really hard to really take this on from the state or local level. But, you know, we see the difference in terms of the kind of leadership that Washington state offered versus other communities that have suffered this far worse. And, you know, I'm really worried about what will happen if and when this spreads to states and localities where they have a history of constantly siding with corporations and with the rich and powerful rather than the people. And I'm really worried about what will happen if and when the virus gets there. Do you think that there should be a national lockdown right now? Look, I think there ought to be. And I think we know that there is no, right, there's this, this false dichotomy between supporting our economy and, and defeating the virus. And I just don't think that that bears out because you know, you tell people that there's a deadly virus floating around and you're liable to get it. It's not like they're just going to go back because, you know, Donald Trump told them to go back to work and, and pretend like everything is A-OK. That's just not how the world works. And so the only way around this is through it. And to me, we've got a responsibility to make sure that we're going through it as hard and as fast as possible. You've already got the majority of the country under lockdown orders as it stands. Why not do what it takes to beat this virus? and then be able to step back and rebuild from there. But the sort of haphazard approach, the fear of economic loss, look, the people who are most affected by this are already being affected by this. And every day that we extend the time that it takes for us to beat this, we make it that much worse. And so, you know, both to beat the virus and save lives, but also to protect our economy and save livelihoods, I do think that we need real action. We need to all dig into it and commit to it. And then when we come out on the other side, we better make sure that our response to this is progressive, that we're investing in the people on the ground who are hit the hardest, the folks who work hourly wage jobs or, or work gigs who you know, are seeing their livelihoods crumble before their eyes. We better make sure that we make them whole. You know, I'm not so sure you mentioned before that people won't rush back to work because Trump tells them to. I'm not sure people have the luxury to stay home, right? If we're looking at you know, eight out of 10 families who or people that live paycheck to paycheck, they're going to want to get back to make that paycheck. You know, most people are one life experience away from total devastation. And this is that life experience, I would think. So I think it's just so dangerous of not only Trump to keep and continually saying we got to get back up and running as soon as possible, but also that just some states, there are no rules where people are staying home and, and sheltering at home, right? I mean, Arizona still doesn't have a shelter in place, as far as I know. The virus doesn't know state lines. I mean, especially something like this that is so contagious. I think that the only way for us to get through it is we got to lock down everything for a good six weeks, and really see where we are. Because if we keep this going, where some states are locked down and other states aren't, it's not going to end. You're absolutely right, Alyssa. The other part of this is why we need more and better and more progressive action from Congress 
to make people whole right now, right? Without even the minimal relief package that was passed, people were being forced to choose between their lives and their livelihoods. Do I go out and earn a living so that my kid can eat and potentially put myself and my whole family at risk of this disease? Or do I stay home and know that, you know, the fact that I didn't go out today means that my kid might go hungry tomorrow? We need more action, right? A one-time payment, it's just not enough, right? Unemployment benefits are just not enough. Like the ways that this is completely devastating people's lives, I don't think a lot of the people in power can fully appreciate. And so we need far more action to make sure that people are whole in the middle of this and that, and that they're able to stay home and know that they're going to have the means to take care of their loved ones, even while we all do what it takes to defeat this virus and save lives. This shouldn't have to be a choice for people. And by doing the bare minimum, spending 25% of our relief package to bail out major corporations without any restrictions, except for the, you know, the oversight of, of, of a couple of bodies, it's just not enough. And people need more. They deserve more. They shouldn't have to choose between saving a life and saving a livelihood. I want to talk a little bit about Flint because I really think this fits into some of the types of failures that you're discussing. Can you just walk my listeners through the Flint water crisis? Yeah, absolutely. I was the health director for the city of Detroit while the Flint water crisis was unfolding. And it's a city just 50 miles north of where I was serving. It's also where both my mom and my grandfather went to college. Spent a lot of my childhood summer days in Flint with my mom and she'd go to work. You know, a lot of people know what happened in Flint from the time the water source was changed. Cheers erupted as the then mayor of Flint, Michigan, officially turned off the water feed from Detroit. Here's the Flint. It's a public health crisis of massive proportions. Lead in the water supply in Flint, Michigan. Water is a human right! Fight! 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 President Obama declaring a federal emergency here. National Guard troops pouring into Flint. In April 2014, Flint switched from Detroit's water supply to save money. Immediately, there were complaints about its taste and smell. In February 2015, the first test showed elevated lead levels. Officials insisted the water was safe. I want to make sure that folks understand the governance decisions that were made that led to that. So, you know, the story we know is that the city emergency manager appointed by the governor, who was appointed in contraposition to the will of the people of the state of Michigan, who voted to abolish the emergency manager law that allowed the governor to just unilaterally appoint a czar overseeing cities in financial distress. And by the way, at the height of emergency management, more than 50% of black folks in Michigan lived under an emergency manager, so had no self-determination at the local level. And so this person made the decision to save pennies on, on the dollar to change the water source from Great Lakes water to Flint River water. This water was been systematically poisoned by all of the major factories in Flint, where they would just dump the refuse in fact, it caught fire in the 70s. And the fact that it was so caustic and so acidic meant that it started to strip away the protective biofilm in the pipes. And those pipes had been laid before we knew how dangerous lead was. But because of the biofilm, the lead wasn't leaching from the pipes into the water. But after the water was changed and the biofilm was lost, you had leaching of the lead into the water, poisoning 9,000 kids, 100,000 people. But really, right, the story starts well before that. The story really starts when white flight occurs in Michigan, and you have basically Flint, which had been one of the richest cities in the entire country, Vehicle City, USA. White flight happens. 
white folks move out of the city, leave disproportionately low-income black folks who had come up during the Great Migration, who were shunted into the least desirable jobs and least desirable neighborhoods, left with the responsibility to keep an entire city's infrastructure afloat. And then when they systematically, because they've lost most of their tax base, cannot do it under Governor Snyder, the previous governor, they make a decision to pass an emergency management law, which basically says that for these cities, the state gets to appoint an emergency manager unilaterally that strips the people of their right to democratic self-determination at the local level and makes decisions not for the well-being of the people in those communities like their elected government would, but instead makes decisions about, about how to reduce their debt burden. And so they pass this law, and then the people of the state of Michigan vote to repeal the law, and then the governor passes it again, but ties it to an appropriation so it can't be repealed, appoints an emergency manager over Flint who then makes that decision. All of this is about a system more focused on passing tax cuts for corporations and reducing the tax burden that corporations have, and then forcing low-income, disproportionately Black folks to pay the costs of that through draconian austerity policies that ultimately lead to, to trying to save pennies on the dollar by switching a water source and then poisoning thousands of kids in a community like Flint. This is about how government fails people when we allow structural racism to look like austere and sterile policy. From a public health perspective, what are the lasting impacts of this failure? And what about just from a political health perspective? Will Flint recover? I hate to say it, but you know the Flint water crisis is not over. People still don't trust the water in Flint. And we know that the mass trauma that people in Flint endured has long-term psychological consequences for those folks. You've got incredible people like Dr. Monahan, Otisha, and others who are building out the resources that people need to fully heal. But the thing about lead poisoning is that lead stays in the bones for a long time, and it continues to leach slowly. It also has a number of consequences for people's health, one of which is to interrupt cognitive development. Literally, the development of a brain is interrupted by lead poisoning. And so you know, the way that you have to solve that is to fortify people with both the nutrients that can outcompete lead in the body, but also the cognitive and intellectual stimulation that can, can help grow a brain. And, you know, Flint's public schools have also been decimated, like Detroit's public schools, uh, because of these kinds of austerity policies. And so they compound on each other. And so without the, the kind of high quality schools, without the kind of, you know, investment in safe and healthy communities, without the kind of investment in access to like basic grocery that so many people take for granted, um, the ability to heal uh, is slow. It's, it's limited. And, and so we're going to continue to see this play out over time. And so it's not over even if the cameras and the microphones have left Flint. The same story with Detroit, right? In communities in Detroit, you know, some of the zip codes have a higher lead prevalence than Flint at the height of the Flint water crisis, not because of water, but because of lead in housing. But instead of happening all at once, they happened over a long period of time. But it's just still the same story. It's the disinvestment of major corporations like General Motors from Detroit and Flint. It's the passing of austerity policies to pass tax cuts for those corporations in our state and then to pay for them by leveling draconian austerity policy in a major city that leaves people poor and destitute without the resources that they need to protect themselves and their children from something like this. And so these are the same stories that keep happening. And then you think about COVID, disproportionate impact in a city like Detroit, largely because of the same patterning of disinvestment and underfunded government and austerity policy that then leaves people susceptible 
and vulnerable to something like COVID. And so these things keep repeating themselves. Right. And unless we're willing to invest in the public policy to protect people, we keep seeing these things happen. I mean, I was amazed when I went to Flint. I got a very good education on lead poisoning. And correct me if I'm wrong, but lead affects brain development. And the only way to kind of reverse the effects is from nutrition. And Flint is a food desert, correct? That's right. So can you explain to my listeners what that actually means? A lot of people have never heard of that phrase. What does a food desert mean? So I actually prefer the term food swamp, and let me explain why. So a food desert is a place where there's just not a lot of healthy food. But there's always food. It's just not the healthy kind. And so the idea of a food swamp is that there's a lot of stuff. It's just not the stuff that you need. And so the explanation here is that you have communities like Flint and Detroit that are disproportionately poor, where the cost of car ownership or auto insurance are prohibitive, and where you had huge outflow of people. And so there's not that much density, unlike a Bronx or, or other high density, but low income community. And so, you know, poverty with low density and low transportation means that the amount of money that can be spent at groceries is minimal. So grocery stores just don't open up there. And so you end up having the food that's sold at a liquor store, which often includes fried foods or includes, you know, sugary cereals, but not the green leafy vegetables that, you know, are packed with the, the micronutrients that, that grow a brain. And so you have a lot of the macronutrients that grow a belly but not a lot of the micronutrients that grow a brain. And it leaves people chronically both malnourished, right, with the vitamins and nutrients uh, and minerals that are so critical, but overnourished with carbohydrates and fats that are so unhealthy. And so, you know, it's the worst of all worlds. Oh, it's devastating. I want to go back a little bit to... COVID-19 and what we're facing right now, where do you think the responsibility lies in preparing for something like this, fighting epidemics and pandemics? Is that at the city level, the state? Is it nationally? What's the answer? Yeah. America's public health infrastructure is traditionally some of the best in the world. The professionals who work in that infrastructure are incredible people who've given their lives to protecting us. We have over 3,000 local and state or territorial health departments in the country. They have been systematically underfunded over time. If you look at public health funding over the past 15 years, it's fallen by 45%. My job in Detroit was to rebuild a health department that had been shut down when the city went through bankruptcy in the poorest city in America, a 185-year-old health department shut down. And that's sort of the pits of it. But you're seeing chronic underfunding across the system. And then you're seeing threatened budget cuts to the CDC and other public health institutions at the federal level. What usually happens in a situation like this is that there is a free flow of information up and down the chain from local to state, federal government, public health institutions. But the leadership, right, has to come from the federal level. And under this president, who was more interested in the political story and the economic fallout of a major pandemic, rather than doing what needed to be done, putting science first and putting the CDC and, and other public health leadership in front, we saw just a massive failure of leadership and it's continuing. And so the direction and the oversight and the capacity that the CDC offers that 
state and local health departments do not, was missing. So you ended up having state and local departments, in effect, trying to make it up as they go, but without the resources, right, the command and control capacity to create resources, they were all competing against each other for very limited resources, all trying to do the same thing, which is get testing out and then prepare for the incoming influx of patients. And so we've undercut our public health institutions by defunding them. And then in this, the context of failed federal leadership it, at the CDC level and above, they were just fundamentally unready and unable to respond to this when it was still just a small fire in a toaster. And instead, it became a global pandemic. Let's just say that you had the chance to sit down with Donald Trump. <laughs> OK, what would you say to him right now? Right now, I would say we need the Defense Production Act right now. We need to be pumping out personal protective equipment, swabs for tests and ventilators as fast as possible. I would also say that we need to deploy the National Guard federally. We need to be building, even in rural communities, COVID care hospitals that can provide care Mm. for folks Mm -hmm. um, who suffer from this. And I would be saying that you need to stop with the roadshow that you're putting on every day because you're distracting people from what, what really matters. And you need to, if you're going to have a daily check-in, it's got to be Anthony Fauci, Surgeon General, Deborah Burks, and maybe Azar and your Assistant Secretary, Jirwar. But you need to be nowhere to be found. You need to hand over leadership to them. You need to do what it is that they tell you we need to get done. And you need to get your ego and your politics out of the way. And what about to the next Dr. Abdul El-Sayed? What would you tell the next young person who wants to be of service in government? Would you encourage them? Oh, absolutely. There's not a day that goes by that I don't wish I was back in my role in Detroit. Not one day. And with that, I would like to introduce to you my next governor of the state of Michigan. I'm doing this because I believe that people matter more. I'm doing this because I believe that our collective potential is greater than our cynicism. I'm doing this because I believe in a future that is brighter than our past, a tomorrow that is greater than our today. I'm doing this because I believe that the challenges that are faced by poor and working black people in places like Detroit and poor and working white people in places like Ishpeming and Big Rapids, those are the same challenges and we have to solve them. I, uh, when I was living in New York, I would see Uh, headlines like this one. Detroit infant mortality rate is worse than Mexico's. Um, And as a population health scientist, obviously, and somebody from Detroit, this is something that very much piqued my interest um, and and, and got me to read and to think. But what's missed in conversations like this is that these problems are fundamentally local problems. You can't just outline the entire city of Detroit and then assume, for example, if a baby just crosses eight mile, that the kid has a substantially higher chance of dying. It's not that simple. These are extremely local challenges. I feel a little bit like a general who's missing the war right now. And, you know, I appreciate that there's a lot of work to be done to communicate this crisis out to people. And I hope that I'm doing that to the best of my ability. But there's an ability to really serve people in roles like that that is unique. And you learn a lot about people. You learn a lot about how the world works. And more importantly, you get to put your time and effort into making people healthier. So government matters. It matters more now than it, it really ever did, particularly in the setting of its absence because of you know, the ideological onslaught, people who think that government is just part of the problem. So, yeah, you know, if you get the privilege and the honor to serve, I hope that you'll take it. And I hope that in that process that you will seek to make it more 
equitable and just and sustainable. And finally, please, please, please help us find some hope. Can we get to a place where we are physically and politically healthy? I'm a deeply optimistic person. And the reason why is because every morning I wake up and one of the first persons I get to see is my little two-year-old daughter, Emily. Mm. And I look at her energy and her enthusiasm and her zest for life. And I think you deserve a world that's so much better than this. And we can build that together. And I also see people coming together in this moment of crisis in ways that you don't always see. It happens, but you don't always see it. This is when we need each other most. And I think that we have the opportunity to come out of this crisis stronger and stronger because we're more willing to be reliant on each other. And then the last thing I'll say is that, you know, for a lot of folks, the experience of this has been just being stuck and not knowing really what to do with your time. And I think for a lot of us, it's forced us to ask, well, what do we do with our time most of the time? And what are the things that matter most to us? And I think spiritually, if we are willing to take this opportunity to connect to the things that matter most, I know there's a lot of anxiety to be had. We don't know what the future looks like. We don't know how long we're going to be stuck here. We don't know what's going to happen. But if we take the time to invest in the things that are the most meaningful and salient to us, I think we come out of this stronger and better and more unified and able to take on these challenges that we have to take on together. Well, thank you for your time and your expertise and your service to our country and to your community. This feels scary. It feels like the world's in a place that we haven't seen for a long time. People don't just disagree um, in the way that we're familiar with on the left-right political divide. There are much deeper differences afoot. What on earth is going on, and how did we yeah, get here? Yeah, uh, well, this is this is different. Um, there's a much more apocalyptic sort of feeling. Um, survey research by Pew Research shows that uh, the the degree to which we feel that the other side is not just we don't just dislike them, we strongly dislike them, and we think that they are a threat to the nation. Those numbers have gone up and up, and those are over 50% now uh, on both sides. People are scared because it feels like this is different than before. It's it's much more intense. Um, Whenever I look at any sort of puzzle, any sort of social puzzle, I always just apply the three basic principles of moral psychology, and I think they'll, they'll help us here. Um, so the first, the first thing that you have to always keep in mind when you're thinking about politics um, is that we're tribal. We evolved for tribalism. One of the simplest uh, and greatest insights into human social nature is the Bedouin proverb, me against my brother, me and my brother against our cousin, me and my brother and cousins against the stranger. And so that, that tribalism allowed us to create large societies and to come together in order to compete with others. Um, that brought us out of, the, out of the jungle and out of small groups but it means that we have eternal conflict. And the question you have to look at is what aspects of our society are making that more bitter and what are calming them down? So that's a very dark proverb. You're saying that that's actually baked into most people's mental wiring at some level. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is just a basic aspect of human social cognition. But we can also live together really peacefully, and we've invented all kinds of fun ways of, like, playing war. I mean, sports, politics, these are all ways that we get to exercise this you know, this tribal nature without actually hurting anyone. So we're actually also really good at trade and exploration and meeting new people. So you have to see our tribalism as something that goes up or down. It's not like we're doomed to always be fighting each other. 
Elections have consequences, and we are seeing those consequences play out now in deadly fashion all around us. The incompetent and negligent federal response to the coronavirus is just one example, but from the lack of access to affordable health care to the gaslighting, lying, and flat-out corruption rife in our government, our nation is sick. But you can be a part of the cure. We have a major election coming in just a few months. And while the presidential race takes up most of the oxygen, we will be voting for every level of government from select persons to mayors to governors and even health directors. Electing the right people will go a long way to making sure the Flint water crisis never happens again, to make sure we don't have a corrupt senator selling off her stocks after getting classified briefings on a crisis like Kelly Lafla of Georgia did, and governors who somehow open beaches after closing the rest of the state like Brian Kemp of Georgia did. (sighs) Georgia, you have your work cut out for you, but so do the rest of us. So let's roll up our sleeves. We've got some house cleaning to do. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.